One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Louise Kennedy on her debut novel, Trespasses, and her short story collection, The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac. Louise Kennedy grew up a few miles from Belfast. She is the only woman to have been shortlisted twice for the Sunday Times Audible Short Story Award. Before starting her writing career, she spent nearly 30 years working as a chef. Louise is the author of a debut novel, Trespasses, and also a book of short stories, The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac, which is just out in paperback. Both books out from Bloomsbury. Louise, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me, Neil. Tell us, first of all, how you would describe Trespasses, the novel. I mean, people have said lots of things about it, but I think for, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's a love story and um, uh, not just in a romantic sense. I guess at the, at the centre of the story, there is a relationship that develops between a young teacher called uh, Kushla Lavery, who's 24, um, and Catholic. She lives in a town quite near um, Belfast and an older man, a much older man who is married and, uh, and Protestant. But there are other, I mean, I suppose there are other types of, of love in there as well. There's a relationship, that, a very tender relationship that um, develops between Kushla and one of her pupils, who she becomes uh, particularly concerned about when his father is very badly injured in a sectarian attack. And um, and then I guess with her with her mother, um, there's, there's a really complex, very loving but complicated relationship because her mother has a drink problem. Um, so I guess, yeah, it's a, somebody said a story of, of love uh, the other day, and I quite like that. So tell us what it was like sort of taking the step up from writing the short stories to this novel. So I think something had begun to happen with the short stories. You know, I, I started to write uh, relatively late. And, um, and also the reason that I started to write is because I was brought to a, a writing group that someone had set up. And I think the short story is like, you know, the kind of unit of fiction that's most suited to that sort of group uh, because it's relatively achievable. Uh, you know, if you're starting out, it could be as short as uh, three or four hundred words or, or, or you could let it go on quite a bit longer. And, um, you know, if something isn't working out, it isn't the end of the world. If you've just, um, you know, gone a few pages in. And I guess it's also suitable for um, creative writing, MAs and stuff like that, um, which, you know, I embarked on one of those the year after I started writing in 2015. But I think probably by about 2018, something had begun to happen with my short stories in that, um, particularly one story in um, the final story in The End of the World is the cul-de-sac is called Garden Sunday. And I think I wrote over 60, I wrote over 60,000 words to end up with a final eight or nine uh, thousand. And it wasn't, um, you know, a linear uh, 60,000 words, but, you know, there were quite a few stops and starts in there and I had to explore different points of view and stuff like that. But I think something had happened that maybe structurally it was probably a, a little like um, uh, trespasses in that 
there's a main story thread and then another running alongside it. And then I, I suppose there are things that become clear or resolved, you know, with, with hindsight. And is that, I think that maybe was, it was a bit of a spur for me that I, you know, I, I persevered with the Garden Sunday and basically stuffed those two big threads of story into, into a short story. And, and I think I probably realized afterwards that all of the problems that I had with it, you know, I worked on it for 13 months were because it was just too big an idea for the form. And um, at some point then, I think my PhD supervisor suggested that I um, that I start to write a novel, um, which also suited me because I was trying to avoid writing up the critical element of my PhD because I hate that sort of writing, and um, like I don't have undergrad English, so I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to write a, an essay. So I, I mean, I think that was possibly it. Yeah. So it, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, I guess it was just a, it seemed like a natural progression that the the ideas were just becoming too complicated. Tell us something more about Kushla Lavery then. Who is she when we meet her? Well, actually, not when we meet her, because we at the beginning of the novel, there is a, there's like a, a sort of introduction and a coda to the novel that's yeah. set in, the, in nearer the present day, whereas mm-hmm. the majority of the novel is set in, the, in, I guess, the 1970s. So let's talk about who she is in the past. Yeah, yeah so um, I, I mean, the main body of this, so there's a prologue and an epilogue, which um, are, are both kind of in the, um, in the, as you said, in the recent past, but the main body of the story takes place over... Uh, spring and summer of um, of 1975, and Kushla is 24. She is a primary school teacher in um, a primary school in um, a part of the north that's very, very like the place that I grew up in. Um, it's a predominantly Protestant uh, town on the shores of Belfast Lock, and she she belongs to this sort of fairly tight uh, community, uh, minority community, and uh, her family has a pub and. Uh, her father has died recently. Her brother Eamon uh, runs the bar. He's quite dismissive of Kushla. He, I guess, behind the bar, he has to tread a pretty fine line because the bar—it's a garrison town, and the the bar is frequented by um, British soldiers, uh, including paras and, uh, and and some, you know, lo- local loyalists as well. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I guess there's that going on in the background, and and then in in the meantime um Kushla lives with her mother who is recently widowed and um has a burgeoning drink problem a gin habit i suppose Kushla's kind of at home a lot she's isolated she's like a very devoted teacher but i guess she doesn't really have much of an inner inner life and then one night this man walks into the bar who is very different from the um the shipyard workers and and stuff who 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 drink there normally and um uh, yeah, I mean, I guess she's kind of um, she's kind of ready ready for some sort of change. Tell us something more about Michael Agnew, then. Who is this man who walks into the bar? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I was maybe trying to, in lots of ways, trying to look at people who maybe aren't completely stereotypical. You know, um, things became very, very entrenched uh, in the north, where people tend, you know, even people who had mixed and and and, and had quite moderate views. I think, you know, co- conflict coarsens people, and I I think that a lot of people just retreated into their own um, their own communities. But I guess this is, I mean, it's relatively early in, in the troubles. It's it's you know about six years or so into into the troubles. And Michael Agnew, although he is, um, you know, he's a Protestant, you know, from a unionist background. He, um, you know, he's probably left-leaning. He is one of the few sort of members of the legal profession who will represent civil rights activists when they've been arrested. And um, he's, he's one of the few who will actually handle uh, the cases of Republicans, uh, those who actually do choose to have legal representation. But at the same time, there, I mean, I suppose there's a class line being crossed by Kushler's involvement with him. Also, I suppose there's a moral line as well because he's married. 
this is it's a it's a fiction novel, but as you mm-hmm. said, you did grow up yourself in a, in a very similar town. Yeah, and I wanted to talk about to what extent how the, how is your own experience fed into this novel, the sort of feel of it and the places and people and everything that actually inhabit this novel. How mm-hmm. much of that comes from your own experience? Um, I think it hugely uh, comes from my own experience. I mean, the stories are absolutely fictional, and the uh, the characters are fictional, but. Um, I could have been one of Cushion's pupils. I think I turned eight in 1975. Um, I, you know, I could have been in her class. I suppose a lot of the banter amongst the children is the, the way that, uh, you know, the, the children in her class had the same preoccupations that we had, which is, you know, they, we watched Top of the Pops and knew what was number one and the boys talked about football. But also every morning we had to um, talk about the news. And um, in, in other places, talking about the news might be about cats getting stuck up trees and stuff like that. But where we lived, it was... Um, much more sinister than that. And um, I mean, I don't think it really occurred to any of the adults that we were probably getting re-traumatised by, by having to um, t- to recite this. I mean, I think Kushla's kind of aware of it, but, um, but that was certainly a feature of, of my uh, school days. The bar itself in which the in which the novel is set, it looks really like the, uh, the bar. It's from my childish recollections, I suppose. The bar, our bar was sold in 1975 after a couple of, um, of bomb attacks. But... You know, the jade green, a few pieces of furniture survived. Um, you know, with, there's a teak table in my aunt's house somewhere. And um, for a long time, we had uh, a single bar stool, a kind of tall stool with um, with this jade green kind of tweed um, upholstery on it. But the, the location of the bar as well, um, beside a tunnel uh, that led to Belfast Lock, that's from my memory, that's where the pub was. And um, yeah, so, I mean, I did draw on a lot of it. I think, you know, people think that children don't um, don't remember things and don't understand things. Um, but I think that my sisters and, and, and myself and, uh, and all of the children I knew grew up being reared by people who were under tremendous uh, stress, uh, much more aware of, of what was happening um, around us than, than adults probably gave us credit for. I was going to ask you about the the children in the class having to tell the news yeah. each day as well. This is an incredibly weird and, and poignant thing. And, and you know, I, I love how you use it in the novel as well, mm-hmm. almost as like a sort of introduction to each yeah. chapter. Something else, I uh, another piece of history around the troubles of that time that I wasn't aware of, until hearing about it in this book, is a, this is something that's happened before the events of this story, but there's just been a big strike in the North. Yes, yeah. Um, What was that? Okay, so in the early 70s, attempts were made by some of the more moderate kind of um, political parties, particularly parties like the SDLP uh, that John Hume would have been a member of, I suppose people would have heard of him, and uh, Brian Faulkner's uh, government, uh, the executive instalment, to try and uh, create a power-sharing government that would allow Catholics to participate in government. Um, because of gerrymandering and various other things, traditionally Catholics were found themselves very much excluded from all of those processes. And uh, th- th- that power-sharing government uh, was agreed on at a place called Sunningdale. So it was called the Sunningdale Agreement. And, um, you know, it was thought of as a great, um, you know, a, a great uh, step forward as far as uh, nationalists were concerned. And I suppose then, you know, I, I, I hope that there were members of the of the unionist or loyalist, not loyalist maybe, but the unionist community, because there is a distinction there. But really, the unionist community possibly felt that this was the right thing to do. But it was met with um, with a very resounding no. And a strike was called by um, electricity workers to begin with, um, which ended up being an, an all out uh, general strike. And after um, over a fortnight, also the very first day of the strike, 
basically the strike was launched. I suppose people would say that these things are uh, were, were not related, but it, it certainly the timing was very um, very notable. Uh, on the very first day of the strike, the UVF bombed uh, Dublin and uh, and Monaghan, killing uh, very many people. And the, the the slogan of the strike was "Dublin is just a Sunningdale away." And um, but after about two years, um, Brian Faulkner um, capitulated and the executive collapsed. And um, I mean, I think that was a really I remember that very distinctly. And um, there is one scene there where um, where Kushletter uh, describes having been stopped by. By uh, a man, uh, a masked man who who she actually knew at, at a roadblock um, because everything had stopped. The shops had closed. There was no electricity. People couldn't get food. There was no fuel in their cars. And, um, and that was actually quite a frightening thing to be um, a Catholic nationalist and sitting around in, in the dark and knowing that people were prepared to go to these lengths to um, to stop you from participating in any kind of, uh, of government. And uh, I, I didn't actually... I don't know if I understood at the time why uh, there was a strike, but I do remember it very distinctly. But yeah, uh, we were in a car with my mother one day and we were stopped at a roadblock uh, by a man who we knew and did not know her. So uh, th- those things, th- those memories are, um, I mean, they're, they're sort of very, very uh, strong, I guess, uh, of that time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Louise Kennedy. We've been talking about her debut novel, Trespasses. And now, Louise, if we could talk about the short story collection, 
the end of the world is a cul-de-sac for a little while. First of all, tell us how you would describe this collection. The collection is uh, 15 uh, short stories, which are set mostly in the northwest of Ireland where I live. Uh, Some quite obviously so, you know, that certain places would be recognisable to people who know the area and um, other places are, you know, maybe I suggest them more than um, than name them. And I suppose those would be the places kind of closer to the border. And um, I guess the stories are about people trying to navigate relationships that aren't working or, you know, the odd sort of crisis. So I guess each of them are met on a on a particular day when things aren't going very well. Let's talk about the world you create in these stories, Ed, specifically at this point, the people that inhabit it. And this story, Hunter-Gatherers, is set yes. in, a, in a big house. But it's a story that's about the gamekeepers and the beaters, not about the people that live in the big house. This is actually also some of the characters, or, or at least are named in various other stories, mm-hmm. if not specifically appear in other stories, and Hunter-Gatherers yeah. is one of those. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the people that you write about, generally. I don't know if it's something about working in kitchens and bars and restaurants and stuff, because very often you work with, you know, in a kitchen or in a restaurant or in a bar, very often the people that you work with are, sometimes they're passing through, very often they're working to supplement other things they're doing and they could be creative or whatever. So I guess, you know, in my working life, I wasn't working in some sort of hierarchical sort of place, you know, with people of a particular sort of class or walk of life or whatever, you know? And I think... um. Also, where I live is it's really beautiful, but in some ways it's quite depressed. And especially after the downturn, which is just, in my opinion, a ludicrous way to um, describe what happened here. I think there were people here who were really quite badly affected by, you know, the economic crash that happened here, you know, at the start of the, the last decade. And, um, and you know, my husband and myself had a business um, which failed. And, you know, there are things that I know about you know, there's there are things in, in this in the stories that, you know, I would have first hand experience of, you know, being like distraught about money or, you know, having negative equity and that sort of thing. I mean, thank God I didn't buy a house in a ghost estate. I have enough problems. But I mean, I, I suppose that that's maybe where, where it came from, you know, or where those characters came from. And tell us something about the landscape. then. as you said, it's, you know, it's one of those places that's both very beautiful, but also, you know, quite bleak. Yeah. So I suppose there are things maybe about the weather, you know, here in the Northwest, you can literally see the weather coming in off the sea um, because, the, you know, the West Coast is lined by by mountains and the clouds sort of have to rise up to get over them and they tend to burst. So it's quite wet. I mean, it is really beautiful. And part of the reason for that, it's not just, you know, the sort of natural phenomena, you know, like sort of lakes and, and uh, rivers and, and mountains and beaches. And um, there are marks here that are really visible that have that were left here thousands of years ago by uh, by people who who lived on this land before so for example i suppose about you know we when we we're locked down to within at one point we were locked down to within two kilometers of home and um and i was able to walk to you know this broken swimming pool um this old kind of 1950s swimming pool at gibraltar where one of the the stories is set you know mm-hmm. from um from one of the windows upstairs i can see this massive man-made cairn on top of Knocknarray Mountain that supposedly Queen Maeve is is buried underneath. Um, if it's not Queen Maeve, it's somebody really important because you can see it for, you know, for miles and miles and miles away. So there are those those kinds of uh, marks on the landscape. 
And then there are more recent ones as well, you know, in the town, um, like I live just on, on the edge of the town, in, in Sligo town, there are some really beautiful uh, buildings that would have been erected when the British were here, you know, the, the courthouse and the town hall and stuff like that, these sort of neo-Gothic or mock-Gothic buildings. Um, a massive asylum as well, which is now a hotel, this massive, um, it, it would have been a, a lunatic asylum that was built, you know, at the height of the famine. Again, like a really kind of extravagant, beautiful building. But then there are other buildings as well, which would be, you know, there are ghost estates, there are developments that were never finished that are just kind of sitting there. And I guess because of that, it's really difficult to uh, ignore the fact that we're not the first people to have moved across the landscape here. A lot of stories are about women, women that are in bad relationships or have left or are running away from relationships or have been abandoned. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about that, about writing about domestic violence and and sort of bad relationships across the book. Yeah, people have picked up on this all right. And I suppose, I mean, I don't think all of the male characters in here are terrible. Um, I think that very often they're not in the best of circumstances. So, you know... And at the same time, with the women, I mean, I didn't set out to write, um, you know, 15 stories about shit relationships. And, and I hope that doesn't come across. But I don't know. I mean, I don't really know where that, that comes from. I, I mean, like four out of four of the, the main characters are men. Although people seem to think, you know, a, a quite a few, few people have said, oh, they're all from the point of view of women, but they're not. And I think of those men, you know, some of them are very good fathers and a couple of them are trying to be good partners. But yeah, maybe with the stories with the women. I don't know. There's maybe something like short stories are supposed to be real life. And I guess there's something just about, um, I mean, you are kind of looking for an extreme situation. Otherwise, you just, I don't know what it, I don't know what it would be. You know, there has to be a bit of conflict or a bit of drama or something. So I guess maybe that's just um, maybe what I'm interested in. I think I'm interested in the idea that I think people are basically fundamentally lonely. I think that we tend to play a bit of a hand in our own disappointments. I think sometimes as well, we're, you know, at the same time, we're sort of powerless against the actions of, of other people. So I guess those are sort of maybe preoccupations of, of mine, too. Well, let's start with that title story, The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac. This is mm-hmm. a story of the downturn, as you um, mm-hmm. as you mentioned it, features a ghostly state. Our protagonist here is is a woman who has basically been abandoned by her husband, who was a, a sort of, I guess, a sort of self-made property developer type. Yeah. I suppose she is, you know, for, for the first few years after the, the crash, especially the property crash, um, sometimes there were reports of, um, you know, if you listen to the radio here, and sometimes I actually really tried to avoid listening to it because they were just horror stories. But, you know, sometimes you'd listen to the radio or pick up a newspaper and, and see a story about, you know, some people fell very, very far. And they weren't always like really sympathetic characters, you know, but but at the same time, the whole country or most of the people in the country were gripped in this sort of madness of borrowing and um, investing and stuff as well. Um, you know, some people more than others, but, um, you know, we definitely by the time all this shit hit the fan, it did seem that, you know, people in Ireland have got themselves into terrible debt and some more than others. I think I was maybe interested in the idea of um of someone who had maybe actively played a hand and, and done harm to other people, which which she and her husband did do harm to, you know, people to, you know, to her sister and probably not deliberately, you know, there was this sort of element of, um, oh, you know, should we take the risk? It's always works or something. And I, I, I'm sort of interested in that. And I was interested in the idea of, um, you know, the landscape here, another thing that you'll see on the landscape a good bit is there isn't a particularly uniform kind of architecture in Ireland. So, um, you know, especially down the country, it's really, noticeable because you know on a road you could see um you know kind of Muldron bungalow from the 60s 
And next door to that, there might be some sort of a big farmhouse, a big fancy farmhouse um, in a field in about a, of about an acre. And then, you know, the next house down from that might be some sort of Bond villain, like really modern um, property with sort of curved walls. And, and also the, the ghost estates are everywhere, you know. So for a while, I've worked in a place where um, I passed a ghost estate every time I went to and from work. And, uh, you know, it had that sort of horrible yellow paint and stuff. And I suppose I was just wondering, you know, like who built them or what would it be like to, you know, to overlook one of those if you'd actually built it and stuff. So I, I guess that's kind of where she came from. Moving on to the next story in the collection, which is called In Silhouette, which is yeah. um, a story that looks back to the to the troubles. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely adored this story. It's, it's so powerful. Mm-hmm. And just this idea of this young girl who was basically just a bystander who, who yeah. well, didn't even really witness anything, but was just mm-hmm. aware of a, of a happening mm-hmm. in the family and how, yeah. that, how that sort of then filters down through the rest of her life. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that story actually, that's kind of a sister to um, another story in the collection, uh, Sparing the Heather. So I, I started to try and write a story. and I knew that I would have, that there was going to be something about, uh, you know, the body of one of the disappeared of the troubles. Because, um, you know, quite, I think nearly, you know, quite a few people had disappeared and um, and their bodies have been buried in these sort of unknown or, you know, undisclosed places. And um, most of those bodies have been recovered. But I think there are still three bodies that, that haven't been. Um, and, and those would be, I think they're three people from the 70s. I mean, I think because I was I was doing the Masters in Queens and I was driving through the kind of borderlands and it was on my mind that, um, you know, um, people in the North, um, for an awful lot of them, the trauma was experienced in a, you know, a, almost by proxy or something. You know, this sort of inter, intergenerational thing or whatever, and that you didn't actually have to do anything to end up having your life really overshadowed by the troubles. And I suppose with that young girl, I suppose there was kind of a there's a transgression really in the first scene, which is that the man who walks into the pub is clearly an undercover British soldier. You know, he's clearly a member of the security forces and, you know, he's tried to put on an Irish accent, not very convincingly. And, you know, he's wearing a heavy jacket that's probably to conceal a a weapon or whatever. But this is like a 17 year old who's, you know, in in this, you know, depressing pub. Uh, near the border uh, with with nobody paying her any attention and um, I suppose I, I was kind of interested in the idea that you know she felt seen by this man when he came into the pub because he bought a drink or whatever and that that maybe added in some way to the um, you know that contributed to the fact that you know she was sort of haunted by the image but then obviously she washes her brother's clothes when he, he comes home that evening after the, the soldier's been dealt with or whatever and um and just about how even though she tried to leave um the north and ended up living in England that she couldn't actually get away from it but I think you know no matter where she'd gone she couldn't get away from it so you know what I mean the change of location wasn't wasn't ever going to work for her so I, I suppose that's what I was sort of trying to to look at there but um so so anyway with sparing the heather is the is the, the story that it's connected to so I started to try and write the story sparing the heather I couldn't figure out whose story it was and I'd written lots and lots of words in all kinds of different you know directions and I couldn't figure it out and then I I tried to write a, 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 I switched to the second person in the present tense and tried to write you know a little vignette like a flashback from the point of view of a character as a as a teenager and um, and it's it really suddenly seemed to be working which is kind of weird because I don't usually use the the second person and it's kind of a strange um it's kind of a, a strange, um, you know, kind of way to write a story. So anyway, I just stuck with it. And, and that was in silhouette. And then when I went back to the original story, I, I think I knew 
it wasn't so much that I knew what it was about. I knew what it wasn't about because I'd written in silhouette. So I was able to kind of finish uh, Sparing the Heather really pretty quickly. So, yeah, those two stories would be would be connected. Wolf Point is one of the stories that features um, a young man as the as the protagonist. We see a yeah. young father yeah. um, who's, again, sort of living a life very close to the land, like a lot yeah. of people are mm-hmm. in this story, and is struggling to raise a young child with, with a wife who is, or a partner who is um, clearly suffering from some severe mental illness. Tell us about this yeah. story. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I guess with that story, I had the setting, I mean, I, I, it's not that I had the setting first. Uh, so one day I get loads of inspiration in Lidl, actually. <laughs> so one day I was in Lidl in Sligo and there was a man ahead of me in the queue and he had a trolley full of shopping. And he was quite a bit older. Um, I had, so there's a little girl in the trolley and um, she had like a snotty nose and uh, she was wearing this kind of um, anorak. And um, she kept, it was really cold outside. She kept pulling the zip down and he'd pull it up and then turn around to, you know, load some more groceries onto the onto the belt. And um, when he turned around, she'd have pulled it down again. And he had big sort of rough hands and uh, was really struggling with the zip. Um, but she called him daddy, which kind of shocked me because he looked, you know, easily old enough to be her grandfather. And um, I suppose then that's where... I got the idea of this man, you know, um, who who is a kind of an older father and who probably expected to be, uh, you know, alone all of his life, who ended up, you know, with this much younger woman and has a child that he's besotted with, you know, um, except that, you know, uh, I mean, I guess that story is kind of like a fucked up fairy tale. Mm. You know, the fact that he works in the forest and stuff and this, you know, gorgeous young one appears out of nowhere and, and he ends up with a family. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I was kind of playing around with the fairy tale idea or something there. And um, yeah, so that's that's where that story came from. To finish it off, Louise, can I get you to read us a bit of Trespasses? Yeah, um, so I think maybe I'll start at the beginning, uh, chapter one. Kushla wrapped her handbag in her coat and pushed it into the gap between the beer fridge and the till. Her brother Eamon was bent over the counter with the stock list. He looked up at her and his eyes narrowed. He inclined his head at the mirror that ran the length of the bar. Kushla leaned in to check her reflection. Father Slattery had marked her with a thick cross, an inch wide and two inches long. The rub of her finger raised the piney resinous scent of whatever blessed unguent the ashes were mixed with and blurred the cruciate shape to a sooty smudge. Eamon slapped a wet serviette into her hand. Hurry up, he hissed. Most of the men who drank in the pub did not get ashes on Ash Wednesday or do the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday or go to Mass on Sunday. It was one thing to drink in a Catholic-owned bar, quite another to have your pint pulled by a woman smeared in papish war paint. Kushta buffed until the skin on her forehead was pink, the serviette blackened, flittered. She tossed it in the bin. Eamon muttered something under his breath. The only word Kushla could make out was Egypt. The regulars were lying along the counter. Jimmy O'Kane, the single egg he bought for his tea, bulging in his breast pocket. Minty, the school caretaker, who got through so much Carlsberg special brew, the pub won an award for having the highest sales in Northern Ireland, even though he was the only customer who drank the stuff. Fidel in his khaki cap and tinted glasses. By day, he measured mint imperials and clove rock in his mother's sweet shop. By night, he was brigadier of the local branch of the Ulster Defence Association. A fitter from the shipyard called Leslie, who didn't speak until he was drunk, and one night told Kushla he'd loved a bather. Another man, middle-aged with a whiskey in front of him. Dark-eyed, faintly jowdy. He was wearing a black suit and a stiff white shirt from which the collar had been detached. Clothes that were conspicuous among the overalls and drip dry fabric. His hair was flat to the ears and then wavy at the nape of his neck as if it had been sweating under a hat or a wig. 
Krishna climbed onto a stool to turn up the volume on the television. When she climbed down, the man with the whiskey was flicking at the filter of a cigarette with his thumb as if he had just looked away. The news started the way it always did, with a montage of short scenes. A riot, a boy of six or seven climbing up the side of a Saracen personnel carrier to poke a stone into one of the slits from which the soldiers poked their guns. A march on Stormont, thousands moving up the long avenue to the Parliament building. They had added a new one, a single parked car on an empty street. It looked like a photograph until the car bulged and exploded into a great ball of smoke and fire and its door somersaulted away from it, glass from the surrounding buildings falling like hail onto the tarmac. The segment finished where it always did, on an image of Mary Peters holding up her Olympic medal. She won that three years ago, Eamon said. It's the last thing that happened here we can be proud of, said the man. His voice was deep, almost rough, despite his refined accent. Right enough, Michael, said Eamon. How did Eamon know his name? So I've been talking to Louise Kennedy. We've been talking about her debut novel, Trespasses, and her book of short stories, The End of the World is a Cul-de-Sac, which is just out in paperback. Both are published by Bloomsbury in the UK. Louise, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you very much for having me, Neil. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by ACAST and published by 89UP. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.